Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens, UFOs, and really just about anything that's considered on the fringe and unconventional. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Laurie Olford. This is our second episode, and today we're going to challenge some age-old belief systems. Hi, Laurie. Hey, Joe. Laurie, we are certainly not the first ones, or the only ones for that matter, to do that. That being to question why we believe things and ask why we accept things as truth. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of a quote by George Bernard Shaw, one of my favorites, who said, All great truths begin as blasphemies. And that makes me wonder about a lot of things that were once, or maybe even still are, considered orthodoxy, yet for no good reason other than it's been told to us that way. Right, and you have to wonder why that is. Uh, why is it blasphemous to question something like ancient writings from thousands of years ago? I mean, before the time of modern medicine, modern astronomy, modern psychology, it, could it not be possible that ancient cultures misunderstood the many things that they have witnessed, whether it be in dreams, visions, or, or phenomena in the sky? I mean, I think it's very possible, right? People once thought alchemy was real, and that the lead could be changed into gold. If they didn't have a good understanding on something like chemical reactions, then it's conceivable there were many other things they didn't understand very well also. Like uh, we said last week, finding the truth is a pretty rigorous and arduous process involving deep inquiry and examination, and we see that in academic circles and in the courts of law. Theories need to be held up to scrutiny. Uh, cases need to be demonstrated. Dissertations need to be defended against counterarguments. So questions and analysis is vital to the belief in any idea. And while there may be some degree of truth in, in those old stories and tales and, and myths that are shared from around the world, they may just be true only in an allegorical sense and still be wrong scientifically. And even then, even in an allegorical or metaphorical way, and there can still be quite a few misconceptions. We see that all the time. So why not question them? Exactly. And with that said, let's look at a controversial subject where some religious folks may deem it as blasphemy by the way in which we are going to discuss it. So the topic on our agenda today is where God is from and who the sons of God were. The sons of God are mentioned in the Bible and the Book of Enoch. So in Genesis 6, 1, we see it reads, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. It goes on with, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now it calls them sons of God, or sons of the Helium, and that they were infatuated by the beauty of the daughters of men. This has to indicate a considerable similarity between them and the daughters of men. It's compatible DNA created in their image and after their likeness. And did they really sort of lust after them though? Or did they just fall in love and just wanted to marry them? Right. And you, you made a substantial association here with the notion of biological sameness. It's hard to fathom this would have been written to show their physical attraction to some primate species uh, that was not like them in any way. 
It says it wouldn't be written that humans at one time wanted to marry orangutans. The writers of the Bible would point that out as bestiality, with the dissimilarity of species being too significant. So their attraction to human women could only mean that there was little or no dissimilarity. Now, this is really the extent that Genesis covers the, the sons of God and the daughters of men. In verses 3 through 6, we find God limiting man's days to 120 years and giants being on the earth and the wickedness going on that really upset God. And we'll get more into all of that later. But in Enoch 7, 1, in contrast to Genesis 6, 1, we learn about the sons of God in a more comprehensive account. It says, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And it goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say that an actual number of them, 200, descended upon Mount Hermon, and they became better known as the Watchers. And it's said that they taught mankind secret knowledge, specifically sorcery. Now, I was able to see Mount Hermon when I was in Israel. It's about 10,000 feet in elevation. And according to Enoch, this is where there could have been an actual extraterrestrial encounter with these angelic beings landing there. Yeah, and it said that they gave up their places with God or with the Elohim after marriage to their human wives. They later became known as the fallen ones. It says they thought mankind metallurgy, husbandry, the jewelry making, and also they you know gives their names like you said. But here's the problem with the traditional view of these so-called angels. If they are spirits, then how were they able to fall in love or lust for women? Uh, at that matter, how were they able to procreate? Um, for that to happen, they would have to be flesh and blood. It's biology 101, right? So were these ancient texts describing beings descending from the sky slash heavens, an actual race of ancient astronauts? Uh, something else to consider about this is that angels are depicted as having wings. Now, again, uh, why would a spirit need wings to keep it aloft? And the answer is they don't need wings. But because they flew around in ancient times, ancient humans didn't comprehend the concept of flight and technology, and therefore associated angels as being able to fly by putting wings on them. In reality, I believe they were just pilots of the ancient skies. Now, Genesis uses the term sons of God, but Enoch calls them angels, the children of heaven. There's no confusion as to who these beings really were. To ancient people, they were called angels from heaven, but to modern people, they would be called extraterrestrials descending from space. Now, to be clear, the name Enoch is indeed mentioned in Genesis. In chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says he was 365 years old, and he walked with God, and God took him away. Uh, he, is all, he is one of only two people who are said to have bypassed death, to being simply taken away, the other one being Elijah. Now, while Jesus is said to have been brought back to life and ascend into heaven, he'd still experienced death. Enoch and Elijah did not. In a way, this sound, these 
accounts sound almost like what you would call uh, biblical descriptions of alien abductions with them being taken away from Earth and not being seen ever again. Right. And the book of Enoch gets more detailed into that as well. Uh, it says they, that he was taken by two angels and named uh, Samola and Regula. You, you know, it's almost a plethora of revelation, of divine revelation, and shows a supernatural world that we as people have always strived to comprehend and experience on a personal level instead of seeing what Enoch saw. It also depicts God as having incredible wisdom and power to enable us to escape death. I mean, now why was such a book excluded from the Bible when it's quoted so frequently? Well, it's only excluded from our Bible, the one which we're familiar with. It is included in the Bible of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Actually, the most complete manuscript of it are of the Ethiopic text, and it, they date to about the first century A.D., um, however, fragments of it were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, so scholars believe that it was written sometime in the 2nd or even 3rd century B.C. It was not included in, in the Tanakh, the Jewish canon, as it was not considered authoritative since it made uh, apocryphal use of sections that are in the Torah, and it was thought to be a reason for rejection. Uh, the rabbis will not allow anything extra uh, to be or anything extra from the Torah uh, to be put into the into the canon uh, from something that was accepted as a work of Moses. Um, and it was not included in the Septuagint, which is what the early Christians used when going to the Old Testament. So since it wasn't in that, it didn't get put into the Bible, at least uh, for most churches. Well, it's definitely referenced in both Old and New Testaments. Oh, yes, definitely. We, we see that quite a bit. It definitely left its influence on the scriptures. And really, there are a lot of pseudographic manuscripts about Enoch. Uh, there are the secrets of Enoch, the epistles of Enoch. There's also the Book of the Watchers. Uh, there are also the second and third books of Enoch. These are all mostly fragmentary copies in various languages. Uh, the second book of Enoch, for instance, is of the Slavonic text. And it dates to the Middle Ages, probably from Prague. It's a little different from the Ethiopic one because it describes heaven and earth more from a medieval kind of perspective. And, of course, it's completely pseudographic or, or forged, if you will. And it could have been uh, redacted from earlier texts that possibly go back to the 2nd century A.D. Okay, Joe, but when we're talking about Enoch, we're talking about the Ethiopic one, right? Yeah, for the most part, that one seems to be the oldest. Um, it can be found in Hebrew and Aramaic texts like those in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sure, but um, even Jesus makes reference to it in, in the Gospels. Well, some of the chapters, like John chapter 5, Matthew 19, and I think Matthew 25, uh, Luke 10, and also Mark 12, just to name a few. Jesus and the apostles in their writings we find references in some of the epistles, like in Jude 1, 14 through 15, and 2 Peter 2, 4. One of the most recognizable passages that conflates Enoch with Jesus' parables is found in Luke 16, 19 through 26, where the beggar Lazarus and the rich man die, and Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom. 
while the rich man goes into the abyss. The rich man can see the two of them and pleads with Abraham to allow Lazarus to dip his finger into the water and cool his tongue with it. And, but Abraham says he cannot, for one reason being that a great gulf separates them, and no one can pass it. There's a parallel to this in Enoch 22, 10 through 11, where it says there is a chasm of water and light above it where the spirits of the dead are separated. Yeah, right. And the James, the epistle of James also uses uh, it as well in his teachings. And, you know, the epistle of Jude begins by saying Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Well, according to the Sumerian king's list, in Mendurana was the seventh antediluvian king, which is a similar story to that of Enoch's abduction experience. While Enoch was taken by two angels, in Mendurana was taken by uh, by two gods, uh, Shemesh um, and Adad. Again, a pretty close parallel, especially with both of them being shown the secret knowledge of heaven. Uh, this was not at all elaborated on in Genesis. So if I'm going to believe the story, then most likely I'm going to believe the uh, the more detailed one. Yeah, and without reading Enoch, you don't get the elaboration of some of the stories and themes that are in the scriptures. Just take, for instance, the allusion in Revelation 12, 4, to the third of the angels, the third of the stars, as it says, uh, being thrown from heaven to earth by the dragon's tail. In Enoch chapters 7 through 10, we, we actually have the names of some of these angels, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah, and if, if these sons of God, are, or the sons of heaven, rather, are the fallen ones, um, then they are, are most likely the third of who fell with Lucifer, which means the morning star, as referenced in Isaiah uh, chapter 14. It, and that came from St. Jerome when he translated the Bible into Latin. Right, the Vulgate which was written in the 4th century. Uh, before that, he was known mostly by names like Azazel, Yalgabaoth, Beelzebub, Satan, a.k.a. the devil. Yes, uh, or the adversary. And St. Mary in Cuneiform described the mutinying race of Anunnaki as the Ikigi, um, as those who observe and see. So the Book of Enoch refers to the group of angels as the Gregori, so you notice the similarities there? Hmm. Um, now, Gregory comes from the Greek word egregori, which means watchers. Um, Eliphas Levi in Le Grand Arcane, um, the Greek mystery 1868, associated the egregors um, as those who were the fathers of the Nephilim, a.k.a. the Titans in Greek mythology. Um, we also have a correlation to these giants in Numbers 13, when the Israelites sent spies into Canaan, and they later reported that they saw the descendants of Anak there and compared themselves like grasshoppers next to them. Anak comes from Anakim, who are mentioned in Deuteronomy 1 and 2, but they're also believed to be uh, the Anunnaki. Uh, you also have Goliath of Gath, the Philistine, in his fight with David in 1 Samuel 17. Supposedly, he was six cubits, which is nine feet tall. Um, it's huge. So, Laurie, we've used a few words here that I don't want our listeners to get confused by, at least not too confused. It's, it's all a little confusing. So I'm going to try to simplify it some, uh, at least as much as possible. 
Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so here it goes. Um, the Anunnaki are what we would call the gods in the Sumerian pantheon. It's a word derived to mean the descendants of Anu, who was their chief deity. And they can be understood as the extraterrestrials from the planet Nibiru. And when we're talking about the Watchers, and we really mean those beings who sort of directly interacted with humans and taught the knowledge by which to help us advance as a species, perhaps breaking from the hierarchy of their own world, uh, they watched or guided our progress. And they're possibly the fallen ones, possibly later known as demons. Now, the Nephilim, um, this is a bit of a mysterious word. It comes from Hebrew as meaning ones who have descended. But it is also loosely translated as meaning giants, which we find in parts of the Old Testament, the most well-known one from Genesis 6-4. Some, like Eric von Danigan, put them as being the giant offspring that came from the mating of humans with the Anunnaki. Uh, others, like Zachariah Sitchin, portray them more or less as synonymous with the Anunnaki themselves. So the Agigi were said to be mostly like servants to the Anunnaki, possibly a different extraterrestrial species altogether, possibly ones who rebelled, and possibly the same as the Watchers. The Gregori are the same as the Agigi. Gregori comes from the Greek Agagora, as Laurie pointed out, and Agigi comes from Akkadian. And, of course, they can all be called gods, angels, sons of gods, titans, and as for the ones called the Watchers, they may be also called the Fallen Angels or Fallen Ones. So we're seeing the cross-lingual associations being made here. And to the point of ancient alien theory, all these words really mean is astronauts from beyond this planet. So uh, clear as mud, right? <laughs> uh, now, I know some theologians have maintained that the use of the phrase sons of God is to be understood as a corruption of translation that it really means righteous and God-fearing people. The problem is that the scriptures do differentiate between the descriptions of good and moral people and those who possess extraordinary characteristics. Uh, for example, Job was said to be a perfect and upright man who feared God, yet he's never called a son of God. Right. Um, the phrase son of God is used to show someone as being beyond normal human ability. Um, they were thought to be more spiritual than physical. So a son of God was a godlike entity. I mean, it's used in reference to Jesus Christ, who is believed to be just that, God. So scripturally, scripturally um, it is more than just an upright and moral person. So, Lori, the big question to me, and I'm sure to many other people, is if all this happened a long time ago with extraterrestrial beings um, coming here from the planet Nibiru, then where are they now? Uh, why don't we see Nibiru even with our best telescopes? Uh, right now, it is undiscovered. So where did it go? Why is it said to exist in the time of the ancient Sumerians but not exist now? Uh, so the answer could have something to do with its immensely elongated elliptical orbit that puts it further away from us than the other planets, uh, so much longer that it takes 3,600 years for it to travel around the sun. Uh, so if that's, if that's so, then its orbit is just slightly longer than ours, uh, just a little, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, just a tad longer. Yeah, a smidgen longer. <laughs> yeah. No, it's significantly longer. Uh, yeah, right. We would go for thousands of years without seeing it. So if it was close to Earth, say, 3,000 years ago, then it could still be hundreds of years before we would be able to see it again. Uh, just consider Saturn for a minute, the planet Saturn. It's distance from Earth at opposition, which is uh, when its point on the ecliptic aligned with the sun not being between uh, the Earth, which is it's 740 million miles. Uh, that's the time when we can see it in the night sky at opposition. So it's been visible in the sky for a while now as a mere tiny white speck. Uh, and with it e even being 95 <clears throat> times larger than our own planet, it appears very small. And that's because it is tremendously far away. Uh, back on December 21st, uh, 2020, a few months ago, it was pretty bright with its conjunction with Jupiter. But for the most part, unless you're a stargazer, you, you probably didn't even notice it at all. The, the significance of this is that with a 29-year orbit around the sun, uh, Saturn's the most distant planet that's visible with the unaided eye. And even then, uh, it's only in the night sky a few times a year with not a lot of magnitude, which is brightness. If Nibiru has an orbit that takes 3,600 years, then generations of people can come and go and Nibiru will still not have moved to a distance where it can be seen by the unaided eye. Yeah, um, even the Hubble Space Telescope only has brief windows of a few days where it can get decent shots of distant Pluto. And that's over a nearly 30-year time frame. Um, the point we're trying to make is that it's difficult to find a lot of these celestial bodies out there in space. These things are incompre incomprehensibly far away. And if it's too far to be seen with the unaided eye, then it's like finding a needle in a haystack, even with the best equipment. But if Nibiru was ever closer to the sun on its on this 3,600-year uh, trip, then that would have been a very long time ago. Um, as it is, the Enuma Elish does talk about an intruder that was captured by the gravitational pull, pull of our solar system billions of years ago, uh, 4.5 billion years ago, I believe, um, and that intruder was uh, Nibiru. <clears throat> this uh, gravitational pull caused it to come in counterclockwise, which was a recipe for disaster. Um, it was a result of a couple collisions with another planet, a large watery planet called Tiamat. The remnants of this are evident today as what is, number one, our asteroid belt, and number two, our Earth. So Nibiru continues on its journey out into space. But because of our sun's gravitational pull, it reaches its farthest point, and then it begins its loop back around, which takes the total of 3,600 years. So since it arrives by way of Pluto, Earth is the seventh planet to its inhabitants the inhabitants on Nibiru, because they were they were counting in from outside past Pluto. Right. So, so one piece of evidence that suggests this is uh, Senator Seal VA-243, which we touched upon on last week's show. So it clearly shows the 12 members of the solar system in the rightful places. However, one planet is missing from our present-day model of the solar system. 
And this is because we are only now catching up with the lost information that the Sumerians already had. Um, I'll also say this, that according to an article uh, in theconversation.com entitled How the Moon Was Formed, new research as scientists believing that Earth may have collided with another planet about, again, 4.5 billion years ago, named Thea. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like Tiamat? It does. Mm-hmm. Sumerians already knew this, but stated that Tiamat was actually the planet where Earth originated from after the collision. Also, we have discovered a planet, which we've deemed a planet 10, right? Um, but we labeled it by the Roman numeral X for planet X. So, yes, my friends, I strongly believe that um, Nibiru is out there and, and making its way back. Yeah, right. And I, I think what we're trying to really drive home here with all this analysis of, of textual references to the mention of uh, these supernatural and powerful beings and, and uh, cosmic events in ancient times is that it all could have been something real and tangible uh, with the accurate details, some of them painstaking details about uh, the celestial realm. Can we simply dismiss it as nothing but imagination? Okay especially when we see the same themes are sort of being given uh, such details amongst not only the Sumerians and Babylonians, but also the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Mayans, the Incans. Uh, All cultures have myths and legends of deities coming down from the sky. And when any of us think about God or heaven, the pictures in our minds immediately go to the sky. When people all over the world pray, they almost invariably turn their eyes skyward. Somewhere up there is heaven, and this is where God, the, the, the big kahuna God, uh, dwells with other wondrous beings. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, that he saw Yahweh on a high and lifted throne, and that six-winged seraphim were above him, and that his robe filled the entire temple. Now, this notion of a kingly God high above us is almost universal, uh, so we have to wonder is it because our ancestors saw these beings coming from the sky from another planet and could not uh, comprehend their technology and therefore uh, can we talk about it and write about it in such a way that they're describing what they think are magical and miraculous? So perhaps these religious texts from all over the world are meant to be read from this perspective that the writers are describing things in a way Uh, that they had no other way to describe. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Uh, Very true and very insightful. Um, I believe the Bible actually refers to the place of Yahweh's abode as Olam, O-L-A-M, which could be the planet Nibiru. Because the Bible replaces the Hebrew word olam with like words like everlasting, forever, or eternity. But the word olam means world. 
Um, we find an example in Psalms 93, 2. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting, which is Olam. Okay, thou art from Olam. Um, then again, Lamentations 5, 19. Thou, O Lord, which replaces Yahweh in good old Bible fashion, uh, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. That's that's going to be from Olam. So this is how it's given um, in the King James Version. Yeah, the, international, the New International Version has it saying it differently. It says, your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Uh, and your throne endures from generation to generation. It's a little, little different. Yeah, correct. And uh, according to a study done in uh, the Dayton Jewish the Dayton Jewish Observer uh, titled Olam, Time and Space. And Dr. Dillon claimed that Olam was referred to or mentioned some way in the Bible over 430 times and is understood to mean a long duration. You see, uh, the Bible is describing the world of Nibiru, uh, which has a long duration of time, 3,600 years. Um, Sitchin wrote in another book, um, uh, divine encounters. Yeah, divine encounters about a conversation in Jewish tradition from around 2,000 years ago. Rabbi Gamliel was asked a question by a heretic as to the exact location of God. His reply was short of sort of long, but in his answer, the rabbi claimed that the journey to get to where God is would take some 3,500 years. Uh, strangely, this is a very close number to the 3,600-year orbit of Nibiru, as spoken by someone 2,000 years ago. So Sitchin went on to explain that the Anunnaki god Anu resided on Nibiru from a text about the tale of Adapa. Uh, it was listed as a place where Anu sat and had a pair of gods guarding the gates. Again, we keep finding parallel literary descriptions with this and the Bible. Right. Now, yeah, now the, the rabbi goes on to assert that the earth was separated from God's abode by seven heavens with a world in each one and a journey of 500 years between them, therefore making the journey among them all 3,500 years. A rather impressive model to be proposed by a first century rabbi, don't you think? I do. I mean, seven heavens, seven planets. <clears throat> and Anu is a king on his world. Um, Anu. Uh, just like Yahweh is a king of his world and our world as well, according to the scriptures. And again, the Bible, like it or not, is describing a, a world, most likely another world, possibly Nibiru, where Anu is king, which is similar to Yahweh on Olam. A Hebrew phrase used is Adon Olam, and it means master of the world. Correct. Um, in the Strong's Hebrew Concordance, number 5769, titled Olam, that describes a long duration. Uh, some scholars believe it comes from another Hebrew word, Alam, A-L-A-M, which means hidden. You can't see it right now. So, however, there is another Hebrew term I really like, and it's Tikkum Olam, and it means repairing, healing, or perfecting the world. Just like, re yep, just like replenishing and repairing the ozone layer on Nibiru doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this now brings us to the sons of God who descended in spaceships coming from Nibiru slash 
Olam. Uh, this is elaborated upon by Sitchin in the 12th planet book and, and others of his in the Earth Chronicle series, of course, and, um, as arriving here in Shims, which are their spacecraft. And uh, when Nibiru reaches the vicinity of Pluto, that's when they launch to get here faster than Nibiru and mine the gold to process and ship to Nibiru once it reaches the vicinity of Mars. Right. Um, yeah, if I remember correctly, um, these beings, the Gigi, were miners and had the difficult task of working in the gold mines in Southern Africa. And this is how the mutiny began because the workload became too toilsome. This now leads to the Sumerian text claiming that the gods created mankind to work for them, which is written in the creation epic. And it says, uh, I will produce a lowly primitive man shall be his name. Adam means man. I will create a primitive worker. He will be charged with the service of the gods that they might have their ease. So after this, man later begins cultivation of the herbs, the grains, and the fruit plantings, which was given to us by the Nephilim, the Anunnaki. Now, thousands of years later, some of the Nephilim mate with humans and teach us more things to better our lives on this planet. That's why Homo sapiens are not the indigenous beings of this planet. We are hybrids who share in the DNA of gods slash ETs and primitives. So think what you like, but there is no denying the fact that humans are unique and different from the 9 million or so species on the planet. We definitely stick out like a sore thumb on this planet. We simply do not belong here. Uh, the reason why is probably because of the uh, such health issues and with our backs and knees and eyesight, diseases, I mean, you name it. Yes, uh, we are definitely a unique species, and that is an understatement. And the more you look at this, the more it starts to seem like the traditions of all these different cultures are coming from the same source, which could be the story or stories of alien beings being present on Earth at least once, if not quite a few times, uh, in the distant past. We definitely hold on to the story, and we hold on to it dearly. The Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. And maybe that says something about our innate longing to to learn and connect with what our ancestors experienced. Uh, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung actually did believe in a built-in, archetypal, subconscious level of sort of inherited memory that we carry with us. Freud talked about it in his works, in works like uh, Totem and Taboo, and civilization and its discontents. Uh, Jung went into it in uh, Man and His Symbols and the Undiscovered Self, among other books. While they don't directly refer to alien creatures or extraterrestrials, they more or less support the idea that people are born to believe in God because of these stories of the past being so intrinsically woven into our psyche. Although you might say that some of the things Jung gets into in the, the Red Book <laughs> could easily be constructed as alien encounters um, and he even mentions uh, a figure that sounds a lot like Enoch uh, in, in that book. Uh, so maybe uh, more on that another time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, well, all the religions from Judaism to Greek mythology to Christianity to the Norse mythology and others can be traced back and compared to the ancient Sumerians. Zechariah Sitchin once asked a question how does the first civilization get a myth? Um, well, this is a very good question because for them, it would have to be a history. Um, but the stories that come after 
being based on the original, they become the myths. Indeed, and, and other writers and scholars like Eric Von Danigan, Graham Hancock, Desmond Morris, and J. Douglas Kenyon have posed the same or similar questions about our histories and mythologies. So uh, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, and just to keep all of you abreast, next Sunday is Mother's Day, so we will not be doing a show that day. We'll skip doing a recording so we can spend time with our mothers and wives, daughters, uh, the, the families, really. And that's right, Joe, because uh, you want to be, you don't want to be in the doghouse. Uh, I actually have nothing to worry about because my wife will be out of town. So <laughs> I do not want to be in the doghouse. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we will be with you the following week, which is uh, Sunday, May 16th, uh, nothing on May 9th. Yeah, we'll see you then, and uh, we wish a happy Mother's Day to all you ladies out there who have or um, are honored to be mothers. And we hope you have a great day with your families. Absolutely. Thank you to all the mothers out there. So Lori and I will be with you again in two weeks. Until then, folks, stay safe, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Bye, everyone. Stay safe, everyone.